0: All right, let's go a little bit into the mythology of Uranus and Aquarius today. This is uh, one of those extremely simple and complex at the same time topics. Fascinating, misunderstood, and truly and literally enlightening. Just for the astrology of it, Uranus is the first invisible planet that we can't see with a human eye. It rules Aquarius. Uh, Aquarius is an air sign, not a water sign, even though it's the water bearer. It's a human being. It's the one that contains the water, not one who is the water, who lives in the water. The three air signs are represented by human beings and then the, the abstract scales, the man made scales of Libra, as opposed to the beasts and the creatures that are the representatives of the other signs. With respect to Virgo, who is represented by the Virgin, it's hard to imagine Mercury ruling some kind of animal it's just a, with due respect to your poodle also it's just not as smart as mercury is it's so it's mercury represents the human ability to reason which is supposedly the thing that differentiates us from the animals though I think knowing some humans and knowing a lot of animals there's some reasonable debate about that as well but it's certainly how it's understood so yeah what else about Aquarius so just interesting factoid when the outer planets began to become discovered it seems that the the era in which they were discovered corresponded to the meaning of the planet somewhat in the case of Uranus it was discovered during the western enlightenment period with the age of reason the age of Detachment scientific discovery the scientific uh, revolutions and so forth the revolutionary spirit that birthed america and and all the kind of incredible liberation writings and concepts that that grew out of that time period uh in fact originally uh, uranus was named Herschel after the scientists who discovered it. So you had all these other planets of gods of Saturn and gods of war and gods of beauty and so forth, and then some, some dude <laughs> with a telescope, and that didn't last very long. And I think the the scientists just kind of named it Uranus because it was the next in line in the the My Three Dads genealogy from Jupiter-Saturn, uh, uranus But it stuck, and there are some astrologers who say, oh, well, actually, Uranus tends to behave more like Prometheus, who was the the great awakener of humankind. And we'll have a lot to say about that ongoing. I think this is probably a a multi-part deal here, because there's so much to say about Uranus. But let's start with the mythology for Uranus, qua Uranus, as Uranus. I, as a sort of astrological fundamentalist, the names that stuck with the planets... I think we need to sort of give respect to that, regardless of what we think they should be, for the most part. Even though there, there could be plenty of associations with the planets, I think the given names and the ones that the human unconsciousness has sort of stuck with, there is truth there. There's an old expression from Switzerland, where they say, trust the poem, not the poet. Trust what actually was written down, rather than the interpretations of the people who did the writing. And I think there's something to be said for that in general. Sort of trusting what actually happens, not what should have happened or somebody made a mistake someplace. It's like, well, this is sort of what the universe birthed us. And try to glean the meaning there before we, we sort of shoot off in another direction. I think that's there's some wisdom in that for sure. And with Uranus and Aquarius, when we look at it from the mythology of Uranus, Uranus is the star-spangled sky. He's the beyond a sky god, he's sort of the primordial, distant, the sky itself. And when he looks down at the planets and at Earth, it's uh, I often use the analogy. It's like you know you climb to the top of the Empire State Building, you're in, in a low flying airplane, you look down and see all the people and the cars, and There's nothing individual about any of them. You know, you can maybe want to imagine them individually, but really from that high perspective, everything is sort of a statistical factoid. It's their interchangeable little bits. There's no concept that that human is pregnant, that human just had a fight with his wife, that, you know, human just graduated from high school and he's really happy. The other one graduated high school and he's sad because he's going to miss his friends. All this kind of individual uh, on-the-ground elements of the human experience from way, way up on high it just kind of washes out. That's actually a bad analogy. It it, it it evens out because we're not able from an abstract point of view to perceive individuality. And that's a big part of Uranus's vision. It's a leveling. It's an egalitarian. It views individuals, whether it's people or factoids, as individual, interchangeable bits. And it's very concerned with egalitarianism, with a sort of flattening of power structures for certainly in, in one element, but then also the ability to think abstractly about things and therefore make scientific changes around them. And so one of the places where Aquarius thrives primarily is in technology, in fact, where this kind of interchangeability is just fine. You know, one bolt, as long as they're the same size, is just as good as the next bolt, or one circuit board is just as good as the next circuit board. They really are interchangeable parts. And that's what makes technology so great, is that we can compartmentalize everything, treat it as interchangeable, and have standardization across the entire scientific language. You know, a foot is a foot is a foot, a centimeter is a centimeter is a centimeter, one kilogram is a kilogram. All these kinds of uniform scientific categories are extremely helpful when dealing with the inanimate world they're extremely difficult when they're dealing with the animate world, with people, with animals and so forth. You know, it's trying to kind of standardize the human experience and this is where things get weird with Aquarius as many Aquarians really want to do that. Most of communism is really about creating interchangeable people uh, where one person is equal to the next person, as good as the next person. There's all kinds of flattening-ism movements where we want to try to kind of, if you're too smart, we want to dumb you down a bit. If you're too dumb we kind of want to raise you up a bit. If you're too pretty we want to kind of make you ugly. We want to kind of standardize and make everybody the same. And that's where Uranus and Aquarius gets into a lot of difficulty on a practical level is the kind of conflict between the the desire for people to be unique and the tendency to look at them abstractly and to sort of statistically as interchangeable units. And that's a huge conflict in the axis in the chart that goes between Aquarius and Leo. Liz Green makes a fantastic point that Leo rules individuality. People think of Aquarius as being this kind of really unique sort of iconoclastic sign. It is iconoclastic, but it actually has much more to do with collectivism than uniqueness. And she says, we know this because the opposite sign is Leo, which is about true uniqueness and true individual. Creativity and so forth. And what we get with Aquarius is when we, we try to shove the sun through Aquarius, the sun is in his detriment in Aquarius because we're trying to express a unique personality through a sign that sees everything as kind of the same, as kind of interchangeable. And statistically, things people statistically and scientifically and objectively collectively rather than individually, which is why Aquarius rules small groups of like-minded people, sort of cults basically, where everyone thinks the same and so forth. And they can be very powerful, those groups, but the individuality of people tends to get kind of hammered out in that situation. And the reason I think Aquarius incorrectly gets a reputation for this sort of heavy individuality is people who have sun in Aquarius, people who are are Aquarians in in pop astrology lingo, I'm an Aquarius, I'm very unique, and so forth. Actually, it's the fact that their sun is trying to express its uniqueness through a sign that values conformity and collectivity, the sun has to try really, 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 really hard to have any sense of uniqueness when it's trying to express itself through a sign where everybody's the same. And so that's why you get the kind of purple-haired people and, you know, back in the day when piercings were really far out, people trying to express uniqueness in really, really quirky ways, having to go way out to the edge of what's normal to find any sense of individuality because through Aquarius they felt so conformist they felt so stifled by collectivism that their son is really has a very difficult time expressing so people who are Aquarians cut them some slack even though it can be oppressive how how kind of militantly quirky they can be, they have a very difficult time feeling unique because their their son is always getting battered around by the sense of oh you're nothing but this you're just one of these, you're another one of these there's nothing special about you because you're just another high schooler or you're a depressed teen or you're a creative misunderstood genius, there's some kind of category they can dump you in to undermine your sense of being special and unique, which the sun requires to be itself. And so it's a very, very difficult placement. So the point of this is that when Aquarius is able to handle abstract things, particularly technology or any kind of abstract mathematical unit where, you know, the number one is always the number one. There's no one and a quarter and it's really one, you know, uh, it's one. And we're able to work in abstractions like that. It can thrive. I mean, we've really, that's all of technology has basically come from the Aquarian point of view. So we have to really admire what it's able to do there. We just have to be a bit careful when it co- tends to mix with the personal because that's when it gets messy. People, whether it's your sun or your Venus who wants to be be pretty in a unique way or maybe more pretty than somebody else. No, no, no. Aquarius, Uranus will have none of that. We're all equal. We're all the same, and that's a beautiful vision to an extent for for a certain kind of person, particularly someone who maybe feels a little bit less than somebody else. Equality is a really good deal for someone like that, right? Because they're going to get kind of raised up. But if you're maybe unique or special or talented or brilliant or beautiful or smart or whatever it is, the Aquarians are going to come after you <laughs> to kind of cut you off the knees. What's called the the tall poppy syndrome in many parts of the world, where if you're too good or you're too exceptional, someone will come along and chop you down to make sure you're you're the same as everybody else. And so when the human aspect gets mixed in with with the compromised sun, there can be a strong aspect of, of envy in the Aquarian world, envy of somebody else's uniqueness and the desire to make everyone all the same. But that envy is usually covered up by a sense of really strong social justice, that these people are too good, they're too rich, they're too beautiful, they're too smart, whatever it is. And there's some kind of injustice in that because I'm not or my friends aren't or not everybody can be that smart So therefore we need to kind of level the playing field That's a very very strong Aquarian impulse And there's a lot to that at some sort of basic human sense And generally speaking it's been an extremely historically destructive point of view Again when we're applying the sameness the leveling effect of Uranus and Aquarius in the scientific worldview To the uniqueness of the individual I am taller than you, I am shorter than you, I have, do have better gastronomical taste than you do, for example, and that's what makes the world so rich, is the unique diversity of everybody's gifts expressing themselves, ideally in their own um, domain, where they can really make the most of their gifts. The Aquarian model really is not able to appreciate that, again, because it's as the sky god, it's looking from so high up, it's not able to make those distinctions between people, and it doesn't want to, and it won't be able to make it sort of large-scale calculations if it has. Has to look at every single person one by one by one by one. And so the the, the Aquarian religions we have right now, like the medical religion, or I, I see the medicine, medicine and technology very much as... as part of the Aquarian mythology, you know, looking at patients statistically rather than uniquely looking at statistics as much as possible to describe outcomes, to describe prognoses and, and prescriptions and so forth. This kind of very, very abstract thinking, in a way, it's sort of the opposite of astrology, which has very much to do with your unique experience, your unique planetary situation, and the unrepeatable moment that we're in now, the particular planetary configuration that we live in, and every moment that is archetypal, but is truly unique, and so we often say that astrology is not so much interested in predicting something that's going to happen over and over again but in describing a unique experience that will never happen again, which is the one thing or one of the things that science absolutely cannot do. Well, science is able to work in large numbers and statistical probabilities, but it is absolutely hopeless in describing a a unique event. Uniqueness comes from the sun, from Leo. Collectivity and statistical probability comes from science and the laws of large numbers and abstractions and so forth. So... So, this is one component of Uranus Aquarius. From the mythology again, when Uranus births his children, well, when Gaia, his consort, births his children. They're really ugly. They're just, they're imperfect. There are they're these monsters with a thousand hands. There's the Cyclops with, with these giant creatures with one eye. There are the Titans with these sort of massive but, but beastly creatures. And we see an aspect of Uranus who, when he looks down at his children, his own children, he banishes them from his sight. They are unworthy of his sight because they are so primitive and so ugly. I think the emphasis on primitive here, they're not as sort of advanced and sophisticated as he is. They're they're mixed with the impurity of the earth and the kind of temporality of Gaia, who is their mother. And so we see the aspect of him that is incredibly intolerant and judgmental in, in a very detached way. And this is one of the elements of Uranus we can experience when we're in his throes. We can be extremely judgmental and and cruelly and ruthlessly dismissive of things that fall outside of our acceptable frames and so one of the the ways we see this is in the isms uranus when we have a uranian experience jupiter is known for his thunderbolt but there's an ascension of consciousness let's call it a degree of awareness when uranus strikes we can have a vision That is just simply a higher vision when we've been sort of walking along like dumb animals for a while. And we'll get more to that when we talk about the Promethean aspect of Uranus. But there's a quality of insight that Uranus can give us that is... Breathtaking. Where all of a sudden we've seen the vision. We've taken the red pill, to use the Matrix analogy. We were blind before, and now we can see. And it can be any number of visions. It can be a religious awakening where, oh my God, I see the light. It can often is something related to social justice where, oh my God, I see how oppressive we've been, and so forth. And I see a higher vision of humanity where we're all equal and we're all brothers, and and no one is ruling over anybody else. You know, it's it's all unequal and power based. And, uh, and we're better than that and or uh, veganisms or veganism or or oh my God, the animals, we've been killing all the animals, we're torturing animals, we're better than that and so forth. And the animals are equal to us, we're all animals on earth and God loves us all the same and so forth. Again, the same, the same, we're all equal, no one is different. That kind of ideology can really possess one and paradoxically make one incredibly intolerant of anyone who doesn't follow the new vision once we've had it. And there's a very uh, intense and, and archetypal Type of experience that people have when they have these kinds of awakenings which is they awaken from often themselves being an underdog For example, the LGBTQ community, which has transformed in leaps and bounds in the past 20 years in terms of social acceptance. At the same time, once it reaches a level of of acceptance, it actually can become extremely tyrannical itself. So a lot of the times people who, and this is, we'll get more into this in the Promethean aspect, but what's strange about the Iranian revolutions is there's a quality of this underdog or the oppressed kind of rising to the surface, but. But instead of just rising to equality, they wind up rising into a place of tyranny themselves. And often their kind of tyranny... Is worse than the tyranny that they fought against. So we'll have to t- we'll we'll pause this. Let's talk about this more when we get into the into the Promethean aspect. Uh, the point here is that there's a kind of enlightenment. There's a detached enlightenment that can happen with the Uranian vision, where all of a sudden your consciousness is elevated. You have a breakthrough insight into a way of viewing the world that is higher, more comprehensive, more enlightened, more egalitarian than what you had before and you basically can never go go back and that kind of insight can Take over your life. It can it can possess you because it's such a compelling vision you can have. Certainly many, many Marxists and social justice warriors have this kind of experience of, oh my god, I've seen the light and the oppression and everything like that. And they become passionate advocates to the extent of often even sacrificing themselves. For example, during the Spanish Civil War, there's there's the, 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 the communist rebels would die for what they believed in. They believed in in, in communism and the, the equality of all people and they they raged against the, the system often to their own deaths, just like the Americans, the capitalists, or the, the the early American revolutionaries who, what did Nathan Hale say, give me liberty or give me death. I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. These kinds of passionate cries for freedom. The movie Braveheart is full of this kind of sentiment with the Mel Gibson, just how passionate the drive for freedom and liberation is from oppression and the desire to be to, to, to not be personally free per se, but liberty in a grander sense, although there is a personal component to for sure so yeah i think it's just that those kinds of insights are very powerful what i want to connect to in a bit is that paradoxically uh once the liberation is achieved this is the liberation mostly of the little people if you pardon my french these are not the natural kings and queens and rulers and sort of the, the upper class who grew up with servants and grew up bossing people around and grew up just with that sense of entitlement and privilege, which makes them tyrannical in the normal sense, but somewhat competent at it. And I think during the, the Russian Revolution uh, is a good example of this. You know, the, the monarchy at that point was, they were used to ruling and they they was problematic. But then when the communists and the Bolsheviks took over, whoa, they were you know, Stalin has killed something like 20 million people. You know, the kings and the queens weren't great and they had, you know, their miniature gulags, but they weren't nearly as efficient at mass, mass, mass destruction. And that's fairly common. The French Revolution was famous for this as well, just the, the beheadings and the kind of the craziness when the the people took over power with their fanaticism of, of their version of liberation. And they were much, much more destructive than the admittedly, you know, Fat and entitled and an unjust ruling class. And so there's an interesting phenomenon one sees almost every single time when the successful revolution happens that often the revolutionaries, once they're in power, they don't really know how to, how to handle it. Partly because they don't believe in power, because they want everyone to be equal, but also because I think the power instinct never entirely goes away. Which, when we get to Pluto, what what many people just see is, oh, they're just they're just envious. That's why they're doing these revolutions, not because they've got a greater vision of equality. That's that's Pluto's very cynical version of it. But when you see the power enacted, it's hard to to disagree with that, and how how brutal and how violent and how inhuman. The humanists can be once they gain power. It's a fascinating phenomenon and, and a bit scary. So Uranus, again, when it moves into the human realm, it ignores the uniqueness of humanity and it also ignores the power drive of humanity, the innate power drive to humanity, because it tries to treat everything objectively and scientifically and rationally is a word I haven't used yet, hyper rationally, as if somehow we could divorce the power drive from the human experience or divorce love of beauty or divorce a sense of of purpose and and meaning in life from the human experience. Aquarius is somehow able to cut all that out in in its reckoning, but that can only go so far. And I think that the problems Aquarius has is when it actually has to go back and relate to humanity in all of its imperfections. Which is why, as I say again, it works best, and Aquarius works best when it kind of doesn't deal with humanity at all, when it deals with abstract concepts, when it, when it deals with technology and science and things where the human foibles, the human power drive, the human you need for meaning and religion and and even authority are kind of not, not involved. Once Uranus starts mixing with, with human differences and human uniqueness, it can get very sticky very quickly. Okay, it's a fascinating subject. I think, like I say, mostly misunderstood in most astrological connotations where discussions where... Uranus is kind of the rebel sign and it's all about being unique and and so forth and it's sadly understood in a way it's a very simple sign but like I say it's actually very very complicated so that's Uranus mainly from the mythological point of view of the detached intolerant father who is disgusted by his children who's disgusted by by the earth and all of its kind of irrationality of all of its uh, unevenness you know there's a big tree there there's a small tree there now there's a swamp it's just it's just so messy and irrational and, and messy and goddess as a quick aside about that, there's I was house sitting for a woman in Northern California at one time, and and she had her kind of goddess art everywhere, and it was just tons of expression and tons of art but it was, n- there was no structure to any of it. It was just all just kind of emotive and emotive and emotive. And it was just, ugh. <laughs> it just, I, I was, I'm a fairly Uranian guy myself. And I was just like, ugh, it's just, it, it just lacks that kind of structure and that kind of vision. It was just kind of all about the emotional expression. And it was just really, really just basically terrible, you know, and great art has both. In my opinion, it's not just purely uh, mathematical, uh, which a lot of modern art tries to be, tries to kind of divorce itself from emotion or inspiration or, Anything like that, and just be a purely um, uh, intellectual exercise. But in the, at the same time, the other kind of just purely emotive, you know, groaning art, it's also intolerable. And so there's you know, the best art is the masculine and feminine blend it together. But from a Uranian point of view, that kind of Animal bestial emoting is just absolutely disgusting, and that's really the word. It's not it's wrong or moral. It's disgusting because it's beneath us as evolved humans. I think we need to. I, I'm having a hard time putting off putting this off anymore. There's another aspect to Uranus. The, the next great aspect to Uranus is the association with Prometheus, and I think it's impossible to really deny this. Rick Tarnas, one of the Northern California astrologers, wrote a book called Prometheus the Awakener about Uranus. And in his idea, Uranus was actually misnamed, which again, in my point of view, trust the poem, not the poet. Um, Look at what is, rather than what, you know, some accident in, in the universe. I think there's a great deal to be said about Uranus as being Uranus. But having him having a Promethean aspect is also, I think, undeniable. Prometheus was one of the titans. Prometheus actually means foresight. He had a brother, Antimetheus, which means hindsight. Obviously, they had a very dif- different <laughs> perspectives in the world. But in the mythology, uh, Prometheus actually made the human race out of clay. He is our our, our father of sorts from a material point of view, which I think is a fascinating analogy. And what happens in the mythology is Prometheus looks at the humankind and, and he sees us living like animals. He says, we are, we're living like beasts. We're just doing all we do is power play. All we do is, you know, mate and, and, and try to eat and try to one up each other. And he's dismayed because he knows what we don't is that we are as gods. We are meant to be as gods. We are not meant to be these beasts. And so what he does is uh, he's often considered a rebel, but he's not in fact a rebel. What he is is a thief. What he does is he steals the divine flame from Jupiter from the king of the gods and gifts it to humanity brings it down to, to, to mankind so that we can see our godliness and this analogy is so ripe in terms of Prometheus's gifts to humanity, in terms of the enlightenment that he brings to humankind. Navigation by the stars, showing us that kind of cosmic order and, and higher order in our, in the service of now being able to navigate the oceans. What a gift from, from Prometheus, our, our, our Titan father. Astrology. A higher system of understanding that brings us out of just simply even animal shamanic religions, throwing chicken bones and you know praying to nature spirits. No, look, we're part of this higher cosmic order. We're not just these sort of uh, primitive shamans dressing like goats and things like that. What we can pull out of that, all the sort of technological gifts come from Prometheus uh, mythologically. The internet, automobiles, the washing machine, that f- for example liberates women from having to stay at home all day and and do the dishes, you know, for hours and hours and do the laundry. For hours and hours. Now we have machines that do it for us and it frees us up to be be more than just animals. So anything that kind of ties us to our biological natures, to our animal natures, to our primitive instinctive natures, to our base natures, Prometheus is there to awaken us to say, No, wake up. You're much more than that. You are as gods. You are not just merely human, merely an animal. You are as gods. Wake up. And uh, when that flame burns, Prometheus can share that flame with uh, to awaken an entire population. And the ideas of liberation like that can grow very powerfully. Again, these are the isms that are associated with, with Uranus and Prometheus. I see veganism as a big one. LGBTQ liberation as another one. All the kind of minority liberation movements and the anti-colonialism and things like that, where there's sort of a power differential. Uh, the kind of awakening to level the playing field is huge. And that's what Prometheus does in effect. Remember Zeus, Jupiter is king of the gods. He's not just king of man. He's king of the gods. He is the ultimate in privilege. <laughs> and I was going to say in white privilege. He's the ultimate in uh, deific privilege. He is superior in every way. And by stealing his fire... Prometheus attempts to bring make the gods lower and raise humanity up so that humans can see they're not special. You're just like them as well. And and flattening things and making things more equal is part of his vision there. So the equality side is more the Uranian side, but the idea that humans can be more than we than than animals, the evolutionary side of that, that's Prometheus to the core. And in the stories, of course, Prometheus is not he doesn't get away with it. (laughs) He is punished. Jupiter, of course, doesn't like this. He doesn't like giving up his power. He doesn't like these upstarts, these young tech upstarts, human beings, new innovations, saying they're just as good as me. I'm the king of the gods, blah, blah, blah. So he finds Prometheus, and in the story, he chains him to a rock. And every day, an eagle comes down, this is Jupiter's bird, and pecks out Prometheus's liver, which is Jupiter's organ in the body. So he goes chomping up at at, at Prometheus' liver, incredibly painful. And then every night the liver grows back and it happens again. He's basically tortured for his crossing of the gods, his arrogating uh, the human race to God level. He's punished and tortured for this for a long, long, long time. And as the story goes, while he's on the rock being tortured every day, he is defiant. It's some of those moving. There's a, I can't remember the name of the play, the the Greek play about this. But he's defiant. He says, "I am not sorry. I don't recant. I don't repent for what I've done. This is as it should be. My creations, my human beings, are as gods, and I am. I will take the punishment gladly for this because this is this must be. And I think that's kind of part of the." the evolutionary spirit, this must be, this has to happen. Evolution has to move forward. We have to progress. We have to go into space. We have to make that go to Mars. We have to do the next thing. And there's something about that that is just so blindly driven that it's inspiring and in one level and often, you know, especially if you're the one who's in power, it's terrifying. But uh, there's also something to, especially to Aquarius as a whole, that's kind of morally indifferent. It just kind of, it has to happen. There's not a sense even like the internet for example, you know, for those of us who are old enough to remember when they came around it was a humongous tool of liberation. We will all be liberated from having to buy maps, from having to, to go to the photo development guy and mail letters all the time and then wait for the post office to lose all of our stuff and whatever. We could mail stuff instantly, free of charge. And we, we can Skype now. All of a sudden, there's no more long distance call charges. We don't have to go to travel agents anymore because the price line lets us... It was so liberating over the, the primitive world we lived in before the internet, which again, if you, if you, if you are less than than 30 or 40 years old you you, you can't imagine the savagery <laughs> that we all grew up in rotary phones and phones tied to the wall where you couldn't walk around or drive or gps maps in your car and so forth the technological advances are just staggering and we saw them and i think Uranus sees them as liberating that's the point But there's also something where, well, no one expected government surveillance also to be a huge part of this or the giant monopolies that were created in in some of the industries as well. And the dark side of that, the technology can be used for good and for liberation, but can also be used for evil and control. And in the Uranian vision, it's kind of indifferent to that. The Greek scientist Daedalus, who created the, the labyrinth, as well as the wings of Icarus, there was something in his in his worldview of just, well, I'm the scientist. I just make the stuff. And the moral implications, that's for you to figure out. You know, we see this now in biotech, for example, in the next 20 years. What's going to happen with biotech and artificial intelligence and so forth? From the scientific point of view, this is just progress. This has to happen. And yeah, it will probably be used for bad things too, but it still has to happen. There's this... In German, they said "es muss sein." In the 19th century, it, it must be, you know, and and that's part of the indifference, and the, the detached humanistic vision. Of Uranus and Aquarius, which is kind of ignorant of human nature and the unequal aspects of human nature, of the human power drive, the human sort of sex drive, the human desire for uniqueness or status or individuality and so forth. It's kind, of, and you know, you meet a lot of tech people, you know, blockchain people or artificial intelligence people, and they're like these super, super, super brilliant nerds who have themselves you know most of them are many of them are very autistic and sort of they're just cut off from their primitive sides almost entirely they're emotionally kind of awkward they're not really bonded with friends and family they're just kind of uh like brains walking around with with thick thick glasses and that's how they see the world they're just not part of the the normal status and power structures of the world again pluto would often say well if these were the nerds getting beat up in high school, you know, their their power structure is, there's a strong desire for vengeance <laughs> against the bullies and the Jupiters in their lives. And then, you know, by becoming the tech nerds, they become the the kings like like Zuckerberg or something like that. And, you know, I think that, that there's some truth to that for sure, because in the human experience, you can't really get rid of the power drive. And so how we balance our Pluto and our Uranus is one of the arts of living that we'll have to wait for another talk. But I think the, the, the aspect of Prometheus that's inspiring that wants us to be more than just the primitive animals we are it's just a compelling part of our experience and uh, there's so many ways it expresses itself a lot of the isms we encounter like I say veganism is a good one feminism is another one where women we're tired of being subjugated we want to be equal to men and not just be concubines and whatever we want to have lines in the movies and we want to be astronauts and so forth and not be sort of be the victims of our biology of our primitive biology where we're, all we're good for is making babies and so forth so there's a that liberating from the biology level is just it's so endemic to to Uranus, but as I say, what's often kind of unsung is once the oppressed group actually liberates itself, they tend to become the oppressors themselves and in ways that are much more inhuman and intolerant and that goes way back to what we were saying about Uranus and his children where he was just disgusted at, at the imperfection of his children and the primitive nature of his children that uh, he was just disgusted by them and intolerant and incredibly judgmental to the point where he just banishes them. What we see with the... I mean, I, I've been a vegan for many times and I, I don't try to associate with other vegans because they're, they can be... Well, they can be like this. Once they've seen the light Oh my god, the animals are oppressed, we don't need animals, we can just live off of you know quinoa and whatever else, we don't need to be killing animals. Once they have that revelation, and this is not all vegans of course, but there's a certain sector, the, the sort of PETA vegans, where they see the injustice and then anybody who's a meat eater is beyond the pale. They're simply inhuman. They are they would be banished if we could banish them. And if they ever gain power, they would, you know, send them to the gulags, you know, not just say, oh, you know, you should really consider eating more more plant food. No, no, no. They're beyond evil. They are savages. They are primitives. And they need to be eliminated. There's a very strong purity level in all of the isms that we encounter through these Uranian visions. Because the when the visions strike us, they are so pure. They are so ethical. Highly, highly highly, highly ethical, impossibly ethical for the most part, because they don't take into consideration that we still do have an animal nature. We can transcend it, but it never entirely leaves us. As long as we're still on earth, we have to balance the rest of our planets and the rest of our signs with the the Aquarian vision. So that's often left out in the Aquarian vision, which is why they're so often frustrated and so frustrating to, to deal with. And the art, and as astrology teaches us, is to be able to balance The various archetypes, particularly Pluto, which is the most instinctive primitive planet with Uranus, which is the most advanced futuristic planet, right? So this helps us kind of get some perspective. Astrology helps us get some perspective on these archetypes because when we're basically possessed by one particular archetype, especially an outer planet archetype, it can be overwhelming. You know, when you have a true Uranian vision... That can be it. You know, you can see, oh my God, I've seen the light. I'm devoting my life to this cause. And I'm going to live in a loincloth out in the wilderness just to, because we shouldn't have whatever, you know, the, the corruption of modern society or whatever, whatever your vision is. It's very, very easy to get completely swept away by that and whack like all the outer planets and, you know, possibly lose your life or give up your entire life for this vision. That may not work because you haven't integrated the vision with the rest of your chart. And that's sort of one of the dangers that astrology can help to highlight is you know when these powerful outer planets become part of your life how to take them gracefully as part of your whole life experience, and not simply uh, trash the rest of your chart and and give of everything for a Uranian vision or whatever else. So, uh, again, some of the wisdom you can get from astrology and the, the extraordinarily holistic view of life that it has. So, anyway, it's it's a vast and wonderful topic of conversation: the Promethean vision, the Uranian vision, and and I hope I'm able to guide you a bit in terms of how to make the best use of that, how to enjoy the the passions and the kind of it's they are passions. The, the visions and the and the clarity and the, the moral perfection and the the possibility for humanity to be so much more that Uranus and Aquarius can deliver to us, and then also to make sure that it doesn't completely take over your life, so that you can become one of those tyrannical Aquarians who are who are become much worse than the tyrants they overthrow in their desire for liberation. So, um, very powerful topic, very interesting topic, and again, very misunderstood throughout much of the astrological world. So, I hope this makes sense. Hope this was of value to you because to me it's, it's, a, it's a magnificent topic. I hope we get to talk about it some more because there's a lot more to be said about this. But chew on that for now, and until next time, thanks.